Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management, the only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome back to another episode of FPOG, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. This week on the podcast, we're going to do another lightning pod. We're going to talk about three things, the holy grail of investing. We're going to talk about ESPPs and why you're probably thinking about it the wrong way. And finally, Justin, we're going to talk about the expanded college football playoff. Justin, which one do you want to tackle first? You know, I obviously I want to talk about the expanded playoff first, but I feel like we should uh, be responsible and talk about private equity. Okay, I like that. And it's a good kind of a meta interesting question of is it responsible to talk about private equity? I would say Tony Robbins in his new book The Holy Grail of Investing thinks so. I think those are really really strong words. And I think it's worth like caveating, like neither have neither of us have read this book. So this critique is kind of, it's kind of empty. I'm still, I've got, I'm still going to share them, but I have not read. Oh yeah. Yeah. I have not read the book. Uh, Nick Majuli, uh, who writes of dollars and data, great, great blog has a more thoughtful critique of the book. And I did reference that before, but I'm mainly, I'm not going to attack the merits of the book, but just kind of the underlying principles. So Justin, I'd love to hear like, what do you think about this idea of Tony Robbins pitching a book on private equity? And, and before, and let me just like read the back to say, hey, like the holy grail of investing, take your seat at the table of Titans and learn how they've gener- how many of the titans interviewed have generated north of 20% compound returns for decades how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of the firm that actually manages the assets how new rule changes allow individual investors to own a piece of the major professional sports teams which have significantly outperformed the S&P 500 over the last 10 years and just other bullet points like that Okay. So, you know, some initial thoughts. Uh, Tony Robbins is a pretty prolific brand builder, right? And so I think it's, it makes a ton of sense for Tony Robbins, who is a best-selling author how many times? Five or 10 times over to write a book on what is probably the most popular area of investing. Uh, private equity sounds mysterious, sexy, um, stuff like that. And so... You know, I've also got a lot of thoughts on the valuations of professional sports teams. And so when you lump those two together, two things stick out to me, Jared. One is 20% compounded returns. Well, I actually actually think that's totally legitimate. And yeah, that can absolutely happen. Or let me rephrase this. It absolutely has happened retroactively in the past. Um, Can that happen moving forward? Well, it can. It is possible. I think it's going to be significantly more difficult. We can talk about why I believe that. And then I've got a lot of thoughts on professional sports teams and how exactly do you come to valuations there. But where should we kind of dive in first here? Okay. One of the things you said is that, you know, like the 20% annualized return. Like and, and here's a really important idea and why I kind of got a bone to pick too. So I think like my big bone to pick number one is like 
private equity is just not a compelling asset class for the majority of investors. And we're really just going to unpack why that is. Like, It sounds awesome, but it's logistically a nightmare for mom and pa investors to build a meaningful private equity allocation. Um, so one of the really important ideas is the dispersion of returns, right? So like, so if you look at how do the best performing private equity managers do and how do the worst performing private equity managers do, the annualized returns differences, I saw a piece from JP Morgan, I'll try to add it in the show notes if that's the case. Over a 10-year period, the difference is 2,000 basis points, so 20%, allegedly. And of course, private private equity valuation is a little little tougher, and so the math can get squirrelier. But let's say that is true. So if you pick the if you pick the wrong set of managers, you got twenty percent. Even if that's right conceptually, you got twenty percent of the upside relative to the best performing private equity fund, right? So like, the problem is everybody talks about private equity as an asset class. You can't. There's no S and P five hundred for private equity. You are betting on a single manager running a single strategy, usually with a concentration in one geography. And oftentimes it's employed with leverage. So you're making a leverage bet on one manager in one part of the private equity market, right? So, so the reality is for the mom and pop investor, like building a healthy portfolio, right? In this podcast, we're big fans of diversification. Doing that in private equity, you're going to need millions of dollars to allocate to millions of managers to make sure you're allocating to the right ones. How do you know how you're going to pick the best private equity manager? And even if you do think you can pick the best private equity manager, are you going to be able to get access to that private equity manager? Because a lot of the best performing ones, uh, it's harder to get into. And the other problem is return chasing, right? Like it's really hard to persistently deliver excess returns. So what happens is money floods in after good years. And and oftentimes af- after the good years, it's harder to recreate because things kind of mean revert over time. So I think, I think you're right. You can get 20% returns, but you know, again, there's a very wide range of outcomes. A very small portion would deliver close to that. And your ability to identify and thoughtfully diversify to that asset class feels pretty pretty slim pickings to me. Yep. And Jared, I do think it's helpful to kind of put some of these terms in really simple, make simple definitions for these terms. So what do we always say about the stock market on this podcast? We always say that the stock market is not some nebulous gambling vehicle. Instead, when you purchase stock, you're, you're, you're taking an ownership share in one of the greatest companies in the world. And so that little change of definition is a really helpful way to view it in, in a more accurate way. So it's not that the stock market's this crazy thing and it, it could be here today and then just vanish tomorrow. Well, in, in reality, it's it's an ownership stake in the greatest companies in the world. And those companies are going to wake up, provide value day in and day out. So private equity, if we do the same there, what it is is owning private companies. Some of them are great. Some of them are not great. Uh, but it's owning private companies. And so the reason I think 20% is always on the table, Jared, we've we've had a few. I don't think we've done this in years, but we've had a few uh, you know kind of talks where we kind of dive into what it's been like to own Brownlee Wealth Management, um, and you know our our growth rate is really substantial, but that's not that's not necessarily surprising necessarily because if you have a healthy small business, uh, there's just so much more room to grow. Uh, than Coca-Cola. You know, kind of an example within publicly traded stocks is 
McDonald's is a really large company. Whataburger is a much, much smaller company. Theoretically, if Whataburger wanted to 10x, 100x their sales over the next 30 years, that might actually be possible because Whataburger could theoretically 100x the number of stores they have in the world. McDonald's can't really do that. They're already everywhere. And so when you own a privately held small business, you have the opportunity for way higher returns. And that's something we've been honest about. If you if you want to go the founder route, if you want to go the entrepreneur route, that is probably going to make, and, and we tell our business owner clients this, if you have a good reinvestment option within your business, that should beat the stock market. It should always beat the stock market. Something is very broken in your business if it doesn't. Um, it's also, you know, theoretically, Definitively, it's more risky than the stock market, but it should beat it. And so that's kind of one carrot that I would throw out there, just that defining these terms properly, understanding what the underlying investment is, that's helpful up front. Yeah, but it's too, too, right? Like if you think about what private equity is, it's acquiring stakes in privately held businesses. And I would also add, it's usually using leverage to do so. Yeah. Right. So like if you, so if you think about owning the S and P, it's not like private equity. It's like owning is levering up to own the S and P. Right. So like the 20% returns sound great, but they're not really risk adjusted. Right. Because you're, you're making a, you're, you're using leverage to get those returns. So the risk profile is actually substantially wider, even, even than owning the S and P because it's smaller companies. So higher, you know, wider range of outcomes with small companies that are in growth mode and you're using leverage to finance it, right? Like I, I, so here's the thing. Tony Robbins seems like a nice guy. I watched several of his little clips, you know, very inspiring, charismatic guy. But I just, yeah, I just don't think it's a good idea to say this, hey, this is the holy grail of investing. That's kind of like red flaggy in general. But right, like it's just, it's just logistically, like it's just not really appropriate for most investors, right? The few things about private equity that make it tough. It makes your tax situation a nightmare. You become an LP, you're getting all these K-1s, like your life just becomes more complicated, right? So like you got to have a CPA that knows how to help you do that. The other thing is capital calls, right? Like these things will raise capital and then they'll call capital at various different intervals. So you have to have a substantial amount of liquidity ready whenever capital is called. Uh, the other thing is, hey, building diversification. So like, you know, we're talking about private equity. It's like, hey, you know, oh, I know this one guy who works specifically in car wash private equity. It's like, okay, great. Like, like that's not a diversified investment. So like we talk, we're talking about big, we're big fans of humility and like building a diversified private equity portfolio. How are you going to buy a sports teams and car washes and, you know, small business technology funds and, uh, you know, drug manufacturing, right? Like you really want to, like, you want to build diversification because we don't know how these things are going to pan out, but doing that is a logistical nightmare. And it would require A, millions of dollars and B, a full-time person to manage all of the K-1s, capital calls. And so it's like, you're like proposing a family office to everyday investors right off the bat, which just, it just seems a little uh, tone deaf. It might not be the right word, but just, it's just not appropriate advice for the vast majority of people. Jared, and I want to kind of give a 30 second reason why, even if today you have $50 million I would I would really lower your expectations on private equity returns moving forward. 
And my quick reason why is, you know, take any industry, it was much, much easier to go find and buy small businesses in 2010 than it is today. So private equity has gotten really popular. There are a ton of people now in this space. That means more competition for buying businesses. And so it is getting increasingly difficult. Uh, you know, I follow several people on Twitter and, and some of them go and, and, and purchase uh, storage units and that's their business. So it's kind of a real estate play and a small business play. And they've been extraordinarily successful doing this. I would propose that the lesson, if you're following a story of someone multiplying and compounding wealth through uh, storage units, I would propose that the lesson you're learning there is not go buy a bunch of storage units. Instead, the lesson that you should learn was, hey, if you could go back to 2014 and buy a storage unit, and then operate it significantly more efficiently, and then take out your capital in a cash out refinance while interest rates are still really low in 2017. And if then you can then go buy 10 of them and lever up to do so, that's the lesson. That's what you should do. I do not believe that the lesson is here in 2024, go lever up and just buy dozens and dozens of, of these properties. Uh, and so it worked really well I think good operators are going to continue to make money in private equity, but be careful. It's just not as easy today as it was then. So the, here's the thing. Yeah. Even if, even if hypothetically it was a really good investment the past 20 years, there's two things that are drastically different. Post-inflation, valuations are higher. Yes. And B, the cost of capital is also substantially higher. Yes. So like that's just math. So the go-forward returns, even if you could go back and pick the best managers and own the asset class and build a really diversified portfolio with your family office, people managing all the K1s and chaos that comes with it. The last 10 years are not going to be like the next 10 years. So it's funny. It's like, hey, is this the holy grail of investing? No, I, I would say no for all the reasons we talk about. And going forward, it's even, it's the avoidable grail of investing. I think the next 10 years, like for yeah. the reasons we just talked about, it's, gonna, it's not going to be compelling at, at all as an asset class. There are so many buyers. Last thing I'll say, I know we need to keep it moving. Last thing I'm going to say, um, Jared, I, I don't want to exaggerate here. I, I was going to say every week, but it is at least every single month I get an email from a new private equity group wanting to buy our business. I mean, it happens almost every week. And so there are just 10 times the number of buyers today relative to 12 years ago. Yeah, I mean, we could talk. We, you and I, could rant for a long time about what private equity's done to the RIA space, but we will save our, our feelings on that for another pod because this is a lightning round. So, okay, we got a little, we went a little long on that one, so we'll go short on the next two because we want to do each of these in ten minutes or less. So, this next one, ESPP, Employee Stock Purchase Plan thesis. You're probably doing it wrong. So, let me just explain for our listeners how an ESPP works. Uh, most of you probably know, but basically the mechanics are, they're usually governed by your plan documents, but usually as employees, a certain percentage of your compensation and how your employer defines it may vary, uh, you can use to purchase stock. And by being an employee stock purchase plan, you generally get a discount. Uh, for a few, a few of the bigger companies we've seen do this, it's about 15%. And so you can buy the stock at a discount 
which is great uh, relative to the current price. And then you'll usually you'll accumulate it and then you'll buy it once. You know, mechanically, it, it won't be like every payroll. It'll set aside cash and then maybe once once a quarter or, or, or semi-annually, you'll purchase all of the stock that, that, that you've allocated a compensation to. And there's generally not a holding period, so you can sell it pretty quickly after you get it. And so I think my hot take, Justin, and this might not be a hot take, but most people should participate in this. And I would say regardless of how much company stock you own. And and people listeners might think, "Whoa, that's we talk we're big proponents of diversification. You were just talking about diversification 5 minutes ago. Now you're telling me to participate in an ESPP despite me getting equity awards every single year." Justin, why I would love for you to just kind of expand on why why we think that might make sense in some cases. I like your thought, Jared, about just treating it like income. So you purchase it, purchase it at the discount, go ahead and take that arbitrage and then sell it. And so executing that consistently, why would you not capitalize on additional income each year? Uh, and so I really like that perspective on it. But Jared, I'm not going to lie. You you mentioned that we should do a, another episode on private equity investing in investment firms, financial planning, wealth management firms like ours and and how that's been a bad thing. All I can think about right now is just that episode that we need to do. <laughs> okay. It'll be, if, well, if we get some feedback from the listeners, we might have to add it and we'll, we'll look under the okay. hood. Back, but, back to employer stock purchase. ESPPs. Right? Okay. But, but yeah, so I think it, ESPPs work if, you, if, like you said, Justin, you think about it as income. The average, so that's why I said you're probably doing it wrong because the average person with the ESPP, they just get the discount and let it accumulate, right? And there, to be clear, there is a potential tax incentive to doing that because if you hold it for a year, it goes from short-term gains to long-term gains. And we've talked about in prior episodes, the benefit of capital gains tax rates versus income tax rates. So there's there's a perceived benefit there, but we're saying, hey, think think about this bucket a little differently. Just think about it as income. So so you can lock in the gain. So let's let's use some math as an example. Let's say your compensation allows you to, we'll keep the math nice and simple, buy $10,000 in stock and you get a 15% discount. So you get it for $8,500, right? So you can either hold it for a year, but but the you don't know where the price is going to be and you have the concentrated stock risk. Or conversely, you could say, hey, I'm, I've mentally earmarked this as income. So I get it, I get the 10K in stock, I get it for $8,500, I sell it immediately. So what I've done is I've locked in the gains and yes, they're short-term, so yes, they're income taxable, um, but that's fine. And it's, you know, it's, I won't say it's risk-free because, you know, there's, there could be a difference between when it vests and when you're able to sell it and, and price movements, but having a 15% discount gives you a decent margin of safety to kind of lock that in. And so I kind of like the idea of, Hey, if you have an ESPP, maybe fund it with the maximum and just you sell it immediately to lock in the gains. And yes, it's going to be taxes income, but it's kind of a pretty low, lower risk way to get some additional income. Uh, and then you can use the proceeds to you know periodically invest and, and, and further diversify those funds. But I think if you're just going to buy an ESPP, use the discount and just let it accumulate, probably not worth it because all your human capital is tied to the company. And all your RSUs and future equity compensation is also tied to the company. So ESP makes sense in that context. And we rarely see people 
doing that. So figured it'd be a good time to bring it up. Justin, anything else on ESPP before we switch to the, I mean, the real reason you were here, which is to talk about the college football playoff. That's right. Um, you know, it is, we acknowledge that this is kind of funny for us to give this take on ESPPs, uh, because how many times on this podcast, Jared, have we hammered home that if you have a long enough time frame in one individual stock, it is probably going to go bankrupt. That should always be your assumption. If you own one company and you have an outsized position in one stock, you should always assume, given a long enough time frame, this stock, this stock probably will be bankrupt and go to zero. So yeah, I think that perspective is, is fantastic though. View it as income, execute it as income. All right. Shall we talk about uh, sports a little bit? Yeah, you lead the charge because I'm not even going to pretend to know as much as you do because I know you've been up late on the message boards all uh, on know, top of this. That's right. I've been grinding on the message boards so that our listeners can better understand the college football playoff. Um, and let's actually, before we do that, I want to also get your thoughts, Jared, on something that Tony Robbins addresses in this book, and that is valuations or really the growth rate. So he is saying that the growth rate of professional sports teams is just exceptional. What do you think about that claim? And how do we even value a professional sports team? Uh, so I, I don't know the economics of running a sports team. My guess is it's pretty capital intensive, right? The, like these people pr probably aren't like they're, it's, it's not like all these organizations are making a ton of money. There's a growth in franchise value. I see it. I see it kind of like people buying a home. Like, hey, I bought it for a hundred. I sold it for two hundred. I made a hundred. It's like, no, you did stadium improvements and you renegotiated some deals and contracts with some players. You went over this, the salary cap a few years. Like, you broke even. You might have had some out of pocket expenses to really kind of make strategic investments for management of the firm. So, like. I don't see it as like a cash flow producing asset. I, I would almost see it more as a collectible, right? Like there's a finite number of teams. Like there's a lot more people with a lot more money who want to own these things to tell people they own these things, quite frankly. And the goal being, hey, it's not an investment because like they don't buy it because like it, it's not a great reason to buy it because someone else will buy it for more money later. Right, like I, I, that's not an investment; that's a speculation. Right? There's no underlying cash. There, there is some value there, but I don't think that's a good like investment thesis. So I would almost put it in the upscale collectibles market, where there will be demand for them. They will appreciate, but I, I just don't think it's the the econ economics aren't the primary reason to pursue investment in professional sports organizations. But what do you think? I would agree. I would reiterate some of the uh, things that we said, even with private equity. So I do think it's a collectible. Um, I don't think there is a, uh, you know, what, what, I don't even know how to say it. I, I just don't think that there's any sort of finance textbook answer that's producing the valuations that we see in a sports franchise. And so are the Dallas Mavericks worth $3.6 I think was the valuation at which Mark Cuban sold a majority of his shares. Um, who knows? Uh, but Jared, I go back to the Los Angeles Clippers selling about 10 years ago, and it kind of just broke people's brains that the Clippers, this historically awful franchise, was getting this crazy price. But back then, I remember thinking, well, it makes all the sense in the world. Uh, because Jared, I mean, 
how many times is a major franchise coming for sale in Los Angeles? How many times is that happening? So whenever a franchise does become available, um, one, even if it's, you know, in a much, much, much smaller metropolitan city, you have to assume that this is a unique opportunity. If you have the capital to do it, you know, you've had a billion dollar liquidation event, multi-billion. Now, you've got to assume that, hey, if I want to buy a sports franchise, I better be ready whenever anything becomes available. Because you shouldn't assume that there's going to be a regular uh, market. There's not going to be regular transactions. And so if if you're wanting to be in Los Angeles and you want an NBA team, you should absolutely assume that this is your single one only chance in your lifetime to make it happen. So my point in that is, you know, sports franchises uh, produced incredible returns over the last 20 years because of that dynamic. Just like you said, it's not because they're necessarily incredible cash cows that are fantastic investments. And we need to find ways to get more people invested into sports franchises. I would not say that at all. Um, I would just say that, well, hey, you know, sometimes you, you have a rare asset like this. It comes on the market and it's going to command just a hilarious premium because this is the last opportunity in life for any of the potential buyers to make it happen. And Justin, that like that's the that's the problem. There li- therein lies the problem. Like if you buy one of these franchises, like and then your kid goes to college, like you're not going to turn around and say, "Oh, hey, I need to sell my stake in the Clippers." That's right. Right? Like that's the other reason like professional sports, like if it's a collectible, it's not super liquid, the price fluctuates a lot. And like, there's not really a secondary market for a minority stake in a professional sports organization at this point. So like you're locking your money up for decades for some potential return that may or may not materialize depending on A, how the team performs and B, how the ultra wealthy economy is, right? And it's like, those are two pretty, and how how your league does and how demand for your league is. It's just, so it's just, again, not compelling from a time horizon perspective. So what does that have to do with college football playoff? I'm glad you mentioned that because that has a lot of investment ramifications. Our favorite holding period for a great investment is 40 years. Um, But to be able to do that, you need to have a financial plan that means that you are liquid at all times, liquid enough to endure 40 years. Um, Okay. Oh, last thing I'm going to mention, we could do an entire podcast on this. This is a pretty interesting topic. So the Texas Rangers just won the World Series, but the Texas Rangers, one of their primary revenue sources is the local cable contract. So when you get into what are the Texas Rangers worth? Well, the primary source of revenue, local cable contract. And that local cable company, as many of you may know, Bally Sports, all over the country, they are going bankrupt. It is a it is a real disaster uh, with Bally Sports and every franchise that that they have deals with. Um, so that deal has basically blown up for the Rangers. Their biggest source of revenue is in total peril right now, and so they sell incredible amounts of tickets. I buy too many of their tickets. And who knows how cash flow positive they are right now because of that disaster. All right, real quick talk on playoffs. Let's do it. All right, college football playoff. It's going to 12 teams this year. 
This year, the five highest ranked conference champions are getting automatic bids. Seven programs will get at-large bids. Um, Jared, my first question for you is, you know, you're an SEC person. Um, how do you feel about this? How many bids should the SEC get? I'm cool with one just because of the seven at-large bids, right? Like being in a program like Arkansas, I could see us sneaking in with an at-large bid. And whether we get one bid or our conference gets one or two bids, I think our conference is so strong with seven potential at-large bids. You could see a really good two or three loss SEC team sneaking into the playoff. And so like, that's really the outcome I want. So I don't really care as much about at-large conference bids, but just really the expanded playoff gets me 90% of where I want to go. Okay. Of the seven at-large bids, how many do you think should go to SEC at-large teams? Oh, I mean, I guess it depends on, I don't know if there's a cap or not, but I I just think as as many are in kind of the top, top ratings. I don't, I don't think they're, I, I don't know. I think like the college football ratings should decide and I don't think you should cap it. So i.e. if the SEC is good enough to have six of those at large of those seven at large bids, like I'm game with that. If, if there's a year we get snuffed and don't have any, cause we're weak, I'm game with that. Is, are there caps? I don't know. Um, well this year, not really. The SEC could have a ton. The rumor is after this year, the PAC 12 is dead, right? So they had to redo this. Rumor is it's going to be four auto bits to the SEC, four to the Big Ten, and then four to the Big 12, ACC, a G5 conference, and then one more at large. So some quick thoughts on this. Jared, I I, I used to be an SEC hater. Um, you know, they kind of blew up the Big 12. I was bitter about it. Uh, and so, you know, I am able to be unbiased enough and honest enough to say, yeah, the SEC probably should have gotten five of the 12 teams in most of the last decade, Uh, maybe six of the 12. Uh, I don't think it makes sense for the Big Ten to have the same number of invites as the SEC. The Big Ten is not remotely uh, in that category after Michigan or Ohio State. So it'll be interesting to see it play out. My main concern, this is what we're going to end on. Um, if you were a fan of a program like Kansas State, which I am, um, or if you went to Texas Tech, Oklahoma State, Iowa State, well, Arkansas is a good example too. Uh, if you are not a fan of a blue blood college football program, the question that worries me, even with this expanded playoff, is how many times is your team going to make the playoff over the next decade? College basketball is great because a ton of teams have a chance to play in the postseason. Even with college football, it's not really the case. I mean, the Big 12 went from 10 teams to 16 teams. So to make the playoff, we now have a chance, but we have to win a 16-team conference. Over the past decade, Kansas State would have made one playoff appearance in the expanded 12-team playoff. Uh, Let me give you a stat. Kansas State is the winningest program in the Big 12. So the winningest program in the Big 12 would have only made the playoff once. Uh, Another quick example, Iowa State just had their best decade in football history. By a mile, Iowa State would have made zero playoff appearances. So my unpopular opinion, the playoff needs to go way bigger than 12, way bigger than 12. We need to have a reasonable chance. Good programs need to have a reasonable chance of making the playoff every other year or every three years. And so that's where it needs to go. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll stick on this topic more in the, in the coming months, I'm sure. 
Um, but that's all. That's, I think that's all we've got for this week. Jared, do we have anything else? Yeah, we went two minutes over. So I'd like to apologize to all our faithful listeners of the Lightning Pod, where we stick to 10 minutes or less. So we ask for your grace, and we also ask for future ideas and feedback on episodes. We always love hearing from our listeners. Give us feedback on the private equity within the investment firm idea. Yeah, and if if you read Tony's book and think we should read it, our our opinion was a drive-by. So we're happy to read it and give a more thorough review if, if some listeners will find that helpful. Love to hear from you either way, podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.